Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so that you can create those products that customers love and want and ask for and tell their friends about. Now, do you know which customers are most likely to stop using your product in the next month? Or what actions your best customers take with your product when they're starting to use it? With the right data, product managers not only know the answers to such questions, they also know what actions to take to keep customers and a whole lot more. This is the area of predictive analytics, and our guest is Brian Brinkman. He's the VP of products for a company involved in the revolution of business intelligence tools, leading to greater predictive capabilities. And that company is Logi. Brian is the perfect person to help us learn about predictive analytics because he's also a classic product manager, recognizing the value of customer interactions along with what can be learned through predictive data. You'll find a written summary of our discussion and the links that are shared at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 209. I hope you go there and check it out. Now to our discussion. Brian, thanks for joining the Everyday Innovators. Great to be here. This is a topic I'm really interested in about predictive analytics and how that can help us with our existing products. But first, I'm just curious about your journey. We both share a background with electrical engineering and our educational past. And you moved from that to marketing to VP products at a software company. Tell us about that path. A lot of people are interested about how do you get into product, your product management. What was your path like? I would love to say that I had a clear vision from the time when I was 18, but that would be a you know, bold-faced lie. <laughs> Came out with electrical engineering, and the first job was really around control systems mm-hmm. uh, for the power generation and air quality industry. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about four years. About midway through that career, I got involved in a fairly innovative and interesting project. And it required me to design a number of user interfaces for the control system. And you got to think about power plants. And these things are pretty industrial, uh, not pretty industrial. They're very industrial. Mm-hmm. A lot of buttons and switches. You got to wind the clock back about 25 years. Yep. <laughs> Dating myself. And, uh, and, the, and the people who are actually really trained technicians and operators. Uh, and going through that process, I learned, I got the human computer interaction mm-hmm. uh, experience a little bit and how hard it was and how to involve people in the process more. Uh, and frankly, I said, I probably really did a mediocre job if I was being honest, because <laughs> I'm not sure I knew what I was doing, but it turns out I knew more what I was doing than anybody else. Um, and from that, uh, I realized that I wanted to do a little bit more um, and I wanted to get more into the software industry directly. Um, but frankly, uh, coming from a electrical engineering job, that was a hard career switch, hmm. you know. And so my best pass was to uh, business school. And I did a dual degree program uh, at the Kellogg Business School in both uh, an MBA and actually a master's in engineering management, which was really more of a operations research type of degree okay. at the same time. Um, so that was great. and. You know, coming out of that, you have the normal options or the kind of expected options, investment banking, management consulting, and all those were good, but I still really wanted to do software. And uh, so I found myself getting into the business intelligence world uh, through my former employer, MicroStrategy, um, and, and that was great. And 
I really went out to the field as a practitioner, always with the intent at that point, I knew I wanted to go into product management. Um, but I needed to get some actual experience and customer experience, understanding the pains, which was good. It actually, it was excellent in the field. And so I was very much a technical uh, and uh, strategic consultant for a couple of years. Uh, and then I made my way back to HQ and worked in the product management and marketing organizations there for a long time. And mm-hmm. and that was it was really very good. So we, we did a lot of new product introductions and... Uh, that was really my path. So I imagine somewhere about six-ish years in, I, I figured out I wanted to do product management. And depending on, uh, you know, and depending on what you want to do, I, I don't think the background is actually required, like limited. Like you don't have to have, right. I think, a technical background to be a product manager. I get that question all the time. I agree. People come from all kinds of areas. That's right. And you really, I think, have to have a, a desire right? Mm -hmm. You have to be curious. You have to want to do it. And what I find is when you want to do it, you'll learn the things you need to learn to be successful, right? If that means if I have a humanities background and I need to learn technology, if I want to do it, I'll learn it, right? And Mm -hmm. people will always help you along the way. But it's more the, I think that desire to to want to do it, desire to build something, you know, whatever that something is. Uh, And usually I think my path is similar you get you get in the field, you get in the real world, and you get frustrated, and you say to yourself, "There's got to be a better way to do this." Right. And my gosh, I can do it better than someone else. And I think that happens a lot. Right. And then you start looking and you start asking questions, and I think that's kind of the journey for product managers. Yeah, and with that, I suspect is that we want to build a good experience, a good product, something of value to customers. And we get frustrated. And I've talked to product managers who they got into product management just over this. Like maybe they were involved in a service role and the product actually wasn't that great. And they were getting frustrated and got into product management to make it better. And there's a couple of things you shared that also are, are in alignment, which is your interest early on with the human computer uh, interaction, HCI work. And that was at the time frame Don Norman had his new book out. I forget what it was called, The Design of Everyday Things or something like that. I don't know if you came across that at the time, but it was how do we design things for people to interact with them in a way that is just intuitive and makes sense. Then when you you recognize you want to do the customer experience work and actually have contact with customers, and I see that as a, a kind of a critical part of if you're going to be in product management, you probably want to understand the customer problem more deeply. That's right. I, I complete agreement. And when I moved to Logi Analytics, where I am now, and we were introducing a new product. We uh, consulted with, I think, world famous uh, HCI uh, gentleman by the name Ben Schneiderman, who's at the University of Maryland. Uh-huh. And he was kind enough to grant us an hour of his time. And it was absolutely amazing. He sat down and looked at the product, and in 20 minutes, <laughs> told us everything that wasn't working. And he was generally right. And um, so, you know, it is a discipline, and it's good to see. Uh, you know, people focused in on that. If you, Uh if you get real good and they're not just you, you know, user experience people, they really are human computer interaction. They think about, you know, the way the brain works and how it interacts. And when we work with people, um, you know, on on embedding analytics into their products, what we find is a lot of their intellectual property and their, and their property is their user experience. Like, you know, uh, what is the flow through? How do people think about their business? And how does that, you know, how does your application express that, you know, the business reality? And, and that's the difference 
most of the time between someone continuing to use something and something abandoning in, you know, in almost the first five minutes. Right. So let's move into that. The, you know, these decision analytics, the predictive analytics that we can embed into products. And I want to ask you some specifics about that, but just to frame it first, are we talking about software products primarily or other kind of products that have a, some kind of human interface? For what we do at Logi, but in general in analytics, we're talking about software products. Mm-hmm. So most of the time, uh, we do them every day, right? The, people have applications they built, uh, whether they're a CRM type of application or, you know, a healthcare uh, electronic health record or a risk application in finance. They're all applications, uh, whether they're built by a company that offers it, you know, on a SaaS basis, or they're built by enterprises to run their uh, their units and, and their businesses. They're applications. And they usually know their business very well. And mm-hmm. they, they orient the application about how to get their jobs done, right? There's a lot of jobs they have to get done. Um, and increasingly, they have to, not increasingly, it's an absolute imperative at this point that analytics are part of that. Right. People want that. But when these teams find out that analytics are not as simple as grabbing a component and, you know, uh, binding it up to some data and putting a chart, it's it's way more than that. It's It's far more complicated because they... Now they start realizing the analytics have to interact with each other. People want to do analytics on their own. Uh, it needs to be themed. It needs to look like their over application if they care about their experience. Certainly the case with healthcare, these things mm. have to be secure down to the atomic level. Yeah. And then suddenly they realize that the whole analytics experience is an entire domain in itself. Mm-hmm. But the key again is how do I get that into my user experience, to my product, whatever it is, so that the the end users are ultimately successful. Okay. So let's give me and the everyday innovators kind of uh, where we are with this idea of predictive analytics. I'm thinking this is in the context of, well, how do we get insights into what our customers' actions might be, right? Are they about to, le- le- if it's a subscription-based system, are they about to churn going on, leave their subscription? Are they likely to take an action coming with us in the future that we are interested in? What kind of insights are we getting on customers? Yeah, those those are good examples. And the transition you, you just described or, or implied there is, you know, we're really looking from an historical context, right? What did happen? You know, which we think a lot of the historical analysis or root cause analysis, why did it happen to what will happen? Hmm. And most people are now starting to make that transition because the the benefit is what you just described is now I can figure out what might happen. And if I can figure out what might happen with some degree of confidence, I can start taking actions uh, against that, right? So if it's a negative thing, right, I want to prevent it. If it's a, you know, if a, if a customer is going to leave, I don't want my customer to leave. Um, well, <laughs> may not be true, uh, but generally we, we want to hold we on to our- We want those customer. profitable customers to stay There are with some us. customers we definitely would like to fire. I believe that's the-, the, the That's official. the phrase, yes. If I am a, an insurance company or a financial institution and I detect a fraudulent transaction, right, I'd like to flag that right away. That has a real financial impact to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if I can prevent any of these things happening in the future, if I'm a, um, you know, happens a lot in healthcare, but anything in the IoT world, if I can predict a machine failure or a sensor failure and I can fix it before it happens, right, um, you know, anytime a line goes down or anything goes down, you know, fixing that problem after it becomes a problem. 10, 100,000 times more expensive than if I fix it before it becomes a problem. Right. Right. So uh, there is real value in, in these applications and using the data, and it is the historical data, but using that data to figure out what's going to happen, 
you know, has tremendous business impact, mm-hmm. potential tremendous business impact. Yeah. And just the, the churn issue for subscription products is huge, especially for companies, startups and companies that are trying to scale. And the one that comes to mind are the get a, get a meal in a box type services that show up at your door and you get the box of food. And their customer acquisition cost is so high that if someone doesn't stick around, and I haven't seen the models for this for a while, but I think most people leave those services in two or three months and they have to get to like four months before they even break even as a company. Getting insights in that's important. Yeah, that's a perfect example. We And I talk about that a lot. The customer acquisition cost, people, I don't think, realize it costs thousands of dollars to get a customer. Yeah, it can for some industries, for sure. For some industries. And if you can get a customer and hold on to the customer, the lifetime value of that customer uh, is tremendous. So to have someone depart or not choose you in favor of something else, right, that it's much easier to maintain that relationship than it is usually to acquire that relationship. It's right. a great example. Right. Speaking of example, uh, examples always you know help us just connect concepts to them. So let's walk through where predictive analytics could be you know plugged in to really help us in our job as product managers. If we have an existing product, you know we're somewhere on that life cycle curve. You know we, we we're trying to grow our product, grow our customer base. Or we're in the maturity phase, we're trying to compete in the market, you know, against competitors. And this kind of information through the predictive analytics is really helpful to us. So do you have an example you can share and we'll kind of talk through how this would help us? The churn example is a very good one because if you're looking, if your business is making up the numbers, even if you're a smaller business, if you're a $50 million a year business and your churn rate is 6%, if you can reduce the churn rate 1%, that's... uh, like five hundred thousand hmm. uh, dollars, that right? And so that the, the that's unbelievable amount of money, right? And so that that is typically the equation we ask people to start with in their heads. And when they get in, everyone's getting excited about you know machine learning, artificial intelligence, predictive analytics. It's a little bit of the uh, you know the shiny new object. And what we always advise people is start with the real business problem that you have, right? and figure out what your problem is, and then look and see if this is the right way to, to go about it. Um, because without that, then you're, you're, you're just using technology for technology state, and it has no ultimate goal. And so why bother? That's just, right. a, that's just a waste of resources when you can, you know, every product team alive has more objectives and priorities than they do time and resources to do them. So, um, you know, pick and choose wisely. Uh, another example we work with healthcare is a um, is really a staffing question. So if people don't show up for appointments, uh, that has an impact both on the revenue side and the cost side, right? So if they don't show up for appointments, you know they can't charge or they won't charge. I mean, I think they're technically allowed to charge, but generally they don't for people to show up. And if they and so they can determine if people are going to not show up based on their profile and their past behavior, if they can prevent that by sending gentle reminders or giving them calls mm-hmm. or asking them to verify, uh, then they can impact the revenue side. On, on the cost side, similarly, um, they have to staff facilities with doctors and nurses and administrators. And if they're under or overstaffed, it's a problem, right? If they're understaffed, the experience is bad and people won't return. If they're overstaffed, then their cost equation is too high. So they can use predictive capabilities just to figure out how to do staffing. And you can do that. That was a healthcare example, but certainly call centers, mm-hmm. you know, manufacturing plants, 
it has a very real impact on the business. That's measurable. I'm interrupting the interview to share something really important. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute, but I want you to know about an extraordinary system called the Rapid Product Mastery, or RPM Experience. In just nine weeks, you can have a higher-performing product team, meeting only 75 minutes a week with no travel required. One product leader, after trying all the typical training workshops, turned to the RPM Experience to get real change for his team. He said that this is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to do. If you have a group of 5 to 14 product professionals, learn how you too can have a high-performing team in just 9 weeks, 75 minutes a week, without travel. This is the system created by Chad, based on his experience working as a product leader, coaching several organizations, and deeply studying innovation during his PhD work. Get the guide for yourself at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. I just read this article uh, recently, I forgot the source of it, that was talking about how companies are segmenting out their customer base based on the interactions that we have with them. So I'm an Amazon Prime customer and, you know, something is showing up at my house, uh, if not every other day, something, you know, happened in the world probably. They must have an analytic system in place for me. Of course. And I'm sure I have some score associated with me as a quality of customer. And and this is what we're talking about, right? The predictive analytics to get insights and allow you to segment your customer base in terms of how good of a customer they are and what kind of actions they're likely to take. Right. And one thing that people need to realize when they're using any machine learning based is the outcomes are as good as the data you use to train the models on, right? So uh, there's going to be people, you know, that have different accounts. There's going to be um, data depending on your, your, your business that could have seasonality into it, right? So Mm -hmm. it's getting to the holiday seasons. There's going to be a lot of seasonality. If you're a retail customer, Amazon for existence is going to have seasonality of their data. Um, Customers are going to behave differently. What we advise people is, uh, when you build a model to do some, you know, to, to take a predictive action, make sure you monitor that model. How well did it do against its predicted outcome? You know, we, we might predict that the model was going to be 84% accurate. Track it. Is it 84% accurate? You might find the model didn't work, hmm. right? So you don't, keep, you don't keep going on with that model, right? You have to adjust the model. You have to test your assumptions. You have to look at the data you used to train it. Maybe it's the wrong data. Or maybe the model is working great, going back to the retail example, from uh, the back-to-school season, right, uh, July through late August, early September. But that model is not going to work now, right? <laughs> we, you know, It's not going to work as you're heading into, sorry, as you're heading into the holiday season, for instance, that's not going to work. You're going to have an differently, entirely different type of model. So you have to be uh, mindful. I know it's careful. It's just mindful that models will work in certain circumstances and they're not going to work in others. So, um, and there are going to be a number of people who are going to take actions based on the information we provide them out of that, out of those, you know, out of those algorithms. Hmm. So you need to constantly be mindful that these models change, they shift um, and that you, you need to monitor them. Uh, I think the worst thing you could do is build a model and assume it's going to work for a year. I can almost guarantee it's, it's not right. So it is something you need to, to care and feed for, um, and 
there's going to, and so that the, the people like, you know, if there's a hundred call center people making decisions on a churn model, they're seeing when someone calls up and the model's wrong or it didn't adjust because there was a new phone that was released or, you know, there's a new data plan, then you're going to send potentially the company in the wrong direction. Right. Yeah. For predictive analytics to help us. So we can build a model of what we expect the customer's behavior to be and and start looking for what the signals are if we're getting indications if that behavior is going to be taken or not, right? And deviate from that. Right. And that sounds like something we could probably do for just about any product that we can get the analytics into. But also, as you're talking about this, I was thinking about, you know, there's big data that has a role in this and, you know, the machine learning. Does that give us different capabilities or are we just trying to solve the problem in a, a different sort of way? You know, for example, when I go to the grocery store and I give them my loyalty card, I assume they're doing something with that data across the hundreds of thousands of customers that are buying from a grocery chain, you know, each day. They absolutely are. <laughs> the answer to your short question, the answer to the uh, the main question around big data is there's at least a couple of things. One, if you're looking for predictive indicators, many times you don't have all the data that you really need to get the answers. So a lot of times within the application, we capture data. Um, but if I go back to the seasonality, I might need to get weather data. Hmm. I, don't, I don't necessarily have that weather data, um, but I can probably go find it, right? Um, if I'm a healthcare company, there's a lot of data that's uh, certainly available to me in my systems, but there's also data available on data.gov um, and CDC and other um, centers for disease control and other, you know, NIH. There are other places that publish data. If they have that data in conjunction with their own data, they might be able to get um, more accurate predictions. And I think that's where I would recommend with big data. So uh, big data is not just volumes, although it certainly is, it's types. So if I can get data from different places and I have the ability to bring that together, what that really has potential for is to drive up the accuracy of my models. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a cost associated, right? The more data you bring in, there's some work there more data you bring in, there's going to be some work curating that data and getting into a form that makes some sense. Then you're going to have to look at it and figure out, um, you know, are there predict indicators or you say in this data, do I need more data? Do I need to exclude data? Right. Um, and, and all that can take some time. Uh, but depending on who I am, if I'm in a, if I'm in a fraud detection world, I, you know, my accuracy of my model might need to be 99%, right? If I'm trying to predict potential, uh, diseases that uh, a population might have, I want to be pretty certain I'm not getting a lot of false positives, right? Because that could create a lot of angst for the patient. Um, on the flip side, if I'm in retail and I, I have a model that's 70% and I can build that model in a day and run that thing out, that might be all I need, right? right. Just, to, just to get that going. Cause I don't want to spend the weeks or months it might take to to um, work through all that data. Mm-hmm. So it really is going to be business dependent. So I think big data, the promise of that is I have more types of data and more access to data and I can potentially uh, make my predictions more valuable. Uh, and then kind of the other side of big data is that uh, presumably there are systems, I'm talking about you know com- com- computer systems, there's compute power that's powerful enough that I can crunch all that data. Right. The training of the model is what takes a lot of time the execution of the model takes practically no time, right? But it's the development of that that algorithm that's going to be used. Um, and depending on the size of your data, the the complexity of the data, the width, I'm thinking of it from a columnar perspective, but, you know, the amount of information in the, in the data itself, mm-hmm. you know, can really drive up that training time. Um, 
So having flexible and elastic computing power really helps to build the model. And there's more places that make that possible for us now, and, and frankly, really cheap, you know, to go to Amazon Web Services and use their Terra database system. And anyhow, a key takeaway from for this discussion for me so far has been there's really this combination of having to think through the model about what we believe are going to be the key levers in our business model and maybe the, the customer experience chain with us, that value network chain, that we have control over to keep the customer with us, to get the customer buying more from us, whatever our objective is. It's that first, that mindset to be thinking about the, developing the model. And then the second piece is, okay, now we actually have to get the data for it to drive the model, make sure we're using good data. The other example that came to mind was, I think it was Facebook that when they were first trying to get users acquired to stay on their platform, they discovered that it was, if you fr- get 11 friends in the first two weeks, and I might be remembering this wrong, this was quite a while ago, right? But I think it, they, they found out that the people that are most likely to stay on the platform, they had a minimum of 11 friends in the first two weeks, something like that. Mm-hmm. And so recognizing that, now we can do things as part of our onboarding experience to make that happen and make that easier. A lot of that is just that mindset to be thinking in terms of what is the model that matches our objective. That's right. And that's why, you know, similar examples um, in the retail banking world, the number of products you have usually defines how long you'll stick with them, which is why mm. if you have in a checking account, they're trying to get you to open a savings account. They'll try and get you to open uh, some sort of loan, a HELOC, a trust, guy, anything. The second you get two or three or four things with them, um, the pain and agony associated with switching that out is too right. great that you'll stay. Right. So credit card, you, you always see them try to uh, lever in uh, more products and they're not really trying to sell you more. They certainly aren't. They just want you never to leave. Right. It's kind of like the, the, the Facebook example you just got or um, the one that, you know, we do every day and frankly, every company does too. Uh, you're talking about customer acquisition costs. You know, if someone comes in as a marketing lead and you don't follow up on that lead within a certain time period in mm. the industry, that could be a minute, five minutes, 15 minutes, or a day, but if you miss that window, that lead goes from you know interesting hot to I'm done. Right. So um, all those kind of insights change the behaviors, right? They, they very much change the behaviors. So the Facebook example is interesting, right? You sign up eleven friends, you stay, right? Right. It's like the old um, dating myself, but the old MCI friends and family. You mm-hmm. hook somebody on, you hook a bunch of people on, you create that network effect, and then people say, and you're doing the marketing for them. You're, you're helping them expand the business, but you get a benefit from it. Yep, the MCI office that was doing that was just down the street. Good marketing program. That's right. Let's talk about mistakes real quickly. So uh, organizations that, you know, uh, any everyday innovators listening going, hmm, okay, I want to think more about this model approach to what we're trying to accomplish and different ways I can wire in analytics to collect the data. What are some mistakes that we might make in getting started with this? I talked about one, but it's worth repeating. Starting down this adventure without a clear business objective, hmm. That's mistake number one. Um, if you can't look at your business and figure out this will help me drive revenue, this will right. save costs. Um, as a product manager, that's where you're going. Or this will help me differentiate my product because I'm solving a business problem that other people can't solve. If, if you can't start there, if you can't articulate there, you, right off the bat, you're going nowhere because then you're starting to, then you're using a tool, in this case, machine learning algorithms, right, mm-hmm. to try and find a problem. And it's just a waste of resources. So make sure you start with some set of problems in mind. Almost invariably, I can tell you when we when we work with customers, 
their problems in mind and we get and we start talking to them and they find other problems. So they come with a problem and it's usually not the initial problem we end up solving. We end up solving the fourth one, right? Uh Um, Because the second problem is, okay, here's the problem. And then we say, okay, let's look at the data. uh, And the data is not there. Right. And we say, do you have other problems? Or they say, okay, yeah, we need data. No, this is really the problem. Okay. Well then we'll go find data. We talked about augmenting data with, you know, third party sources. If it's a key business problem, it's probably worth investing, right? Uh-huh. But if you're thinking about, you know, the the churn example, if you can at least rough out in your mind an, an ROI or an estimate, then you can say, well, if it's a million-dollar problem, I can probably hire somebody, uh, and I could probably spend a few months trying to sort this out because it's going to – if it's a million dollars, it's a million dollars a year. Uh-huh. Okay, that's worth going after. Right. But th- that's always the first – kind of the first part. Um the second part is you should never underestimate the time it's going to take to work with the data, right? Um, because sometimes you have to bring in extra data. Sometimes you're going to find that your mo- your data is not nearly as clean as you, as you once thought it was. And, you know, boy, let me tell you, algorithms do not do well with missing data. Or, you know, if you've got holes in your data, just simple things, uh, it it's super sensitive to mm-hmm. that. So you shouldn't, you shouldn't, um, shouldn't forget how important that is. And that doesn't mean it has to be laborious or you shouldn't go after it. Just assume that what you believe about your data cleanliness is wrong. Right. <laughs> Just assume that. And then you'll, um, you'll, you'll go in, uh, you'll go in with, uh, with, uh, with a better mindset. My, my personal example for that is whenever I do a home improvement project, and I assume it's going to take me X number of hours and it's going to cost me Y. Um, and it's going to take me so many trips to my local Home Depot. If I multiply everything by three, the length of time, the cost and the number of trips, I'm almost always right. <laughs> um, and and that's, how you should, that's how you should think about the data. If you think it's going to take you X, multiply it by three. And when you're done with the project, you'll say, yeah, that's probably about right. Yep. There's not a, by the way, that was not a, that was not a machine learning algorithm. That was just experience. <laughs> well, uh, unfortunately, my home improvement experiences are well aligned with yours, and yeah. I'm always off by a factor of two to three. And then the last thing we also talked about, which is when you build that model, don't assume it's going to live forever, right? Mm, right? Watch it, track it, see if it's really meeting the predicted. If it's not working, then go back and look at your data or was there seasonality in the data? Did something change? Did the business conditions change? Yeah. You know, some businesses are fortunate. They can look at 10 years worth of data. Other businesses it might only be accurate to look at a month's worth of data. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, there's judgment that needs to be applied, you know, applied. And I think that's, that's a, certainly a lesson in the machine learning is, you know, don't trust what's coming out the other end. You, you still have to apply human judgment. And, and that, that's where the maximum productivity, right? When you apply what, what we can do as people and humans, plus what the computers can do for us with the algorithms, that's, that's the winning combination. Right. I want to link back in one of your early statements, which was how you got into product management, which was your involvement with human computer interfaces, right? And interact with real people, with real customers. And I'm a little bit jaded against what sometimes looks like a move towards only data decision-based movement in product management, where we're deciding about the future of products just based on data that we're getting without that customer interaction. I know some product managers are in that boat where they never get to talk to customers at all. And it is this combination, I think, that's really important. We can get data, we can build the models, but part of that applying human judgment hopefully means having interaction with real customers and getting some insights from them. 
And the example that came up earlier, talking about the banks, you know, I was a Wells Fargo customer when all of my products was with Wells Fargo. And I left them long before the scandal because I got so annoyed every time I went into my local branch. Oh, can we sign you up for this credit card? Can we, you know, they clearly had their quotas to meet for the day. The customer experience became so annoying to me. I went through the pain of switching, even though everything was there. They would never have seen that in the data. But hopefully, if they were doing some customer research studies, they, they would recognize we have some other issues going on. I am complete agreement with you. You know, one of the a, a similar dilemma that we have all the time as product managers is: do we incorporate all the customer requested enhancements, or do we enhance the the product for where the market's going to go? Right. And if you do nothing, but and I little bit hyperbolic and extreme, mm-hmm. right? But if you do nothing but answer your customer requirements, you will probably have a nice sustainable business and it will be okay. Yeah. And likely displaced in time, frankly. But what's going to happen is at some point the market will have moved. The customer needs will have moved because you didn't go out and get that information. You didn't speak to them. Mm-hmm. You didn't go watch what they do, like what, you know, what their job actually is day to day to understand the new problems and pains. You're just kind of taking in their requests. And so um, as an analogy to your, to your earlier point, it, it can't just be about what the data, if, if you don't apply the data in context of what the business is or where the market's going, some, 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 broader, some broader issues, or understanding where the new pains are going to be and try and get there in advance, mm-hmm. um, then ultimately you're going to find that your product's going to not be as relevant. And those very same customers that are giving you other requests are going to say, well, but I need all this in your regard, but I didn't know that. Well, you know, you didn't come out and visit me. Uh, you didn't see what my folks are struggling with when they're building the application or what my customers are struggling with uh, because you added me a new feature, but it took me 22 clicks to get to it <laughs> and, right. and, 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 and an owner's manual or five videos, and, and that's not acceptable. So you absolutely have to apply that judgment. And without that, I think um, we'll make mistakes. Yeah, you can't just go by the data. You have to have some context. You have to apply some rational questions beyond just what you're seeing. Very good. Coming from a data person, yeah, we have to have that human experience too. Listeners know I love innovation quotes, and I always ask guests to bring one. What do you have for us, and why did you choose it? Yeah, the quote I have is, if you believe you can or you can't, you're right. And uh, I use it a lot. It's not just an innovator's quote. I think it applies to most things in life. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tried to find attribution, and the, the most common attribution was was Henry Ford. So we'll take that okay. uh, for sure. But I think as a product manager and developers, I, I think that rings true, which is if you don't think you can't do it, you're right. Mm-hmm. And if you think you can do it, you'll approach a problem differently with, with an attitude of, you know, how do I break down this more complex problem and how do I, and how do I get to, to the solution? Um, and I like it because I think it reminds us that, you know, things can be done. You know, you can collaborate with teams, you can work with people, you can find uh, new solutions to problems, which is what's happening around us all the time, right? There's a problem and suddenly someone comes up with a new different way to do it, solves a problem in an entirely different way. Um, I think there are ways now, sure, Right. You, you need to have additional technologies and you need time. But um, I, I just kind of like it as a way of saying, you know, you can get things done. Right. Don't give up. That mindset makes a huge difference. Yeah. And it's a quote that I have shared with my kids more than once. 
Me too. And I usually share it in conjunction with uh, what, what Steve Jobs talked about, which was, you know, everything around us is built by people that were no smarter than you, right? And it's that idea like, you know, it probably is possible if you actually just uh, spend some time working on it. Yep. Very good. Tell us about uh, your organization and if people want to reach out and get in touch with you, how we can make that happen. Oh, sure. You can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Okay. You can find me on Twitter too at Brian F. Brinkman. Most of my tweets of late have been around, no surprise, predictive analytics. <laughs> um, I work for a company called Logi Analytics. We are a leader in the embedded analytics space. So really what we do is provide application teams, product managers, developers, people who are building products, whether they're commercially available products you know, uh, that people can buy, uh, cloud-based, or whether they're enterprises building applications that run their companies, the analytics inside. So reports, dashboards, predictive analytics, self-service analytics, uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier, that, that's far more involved and more sophisticated than I think people appreciate. Um, and so we embed those right into your application mm-hmm. in a way that really disappears into your application. You know, we, we say we, you know, using marketing terms, you know, we, we kind of weave right into the fabric of your application. But, you know, as the application's uh, value a lot of time comes from the user experience, that's precisely what we need to do. We need to look like your application. Uh, our workflow needs to work with your workflow. Um, and so that creates an overall uh, very, uh, I don't want to say seamless, but a, a great user experience for their end users. And so they'll want to use the app. Mm-hmm. Um, that is what we do. And, um, you know, it's, it's super, it's super interesting. You can visit us at logianalytics.com. Um, we have a lot of people in a lot of industries solving a lot of pretty complex problems. Uh, it's kind of, what we were talking about earlier with products. You know, I, I always like to, you know, you talk to my, you know, my friends and colleagues network and say, yeah, I mean, CDC uses our product. You probably don't even know that. And so it's very, it's very neat to see, um, your products out in the world you know, solving problems. All right. Absolutely. I take a lot of joy in the companies that I have used my, my product about, you know, how to help their teams get better. And that's like, that's just, that's incredible to see, you know, we're, we're making a difference. I love that. So I will put the links to those in the show notes, make sure that people may have an easy way of getting to your profile, Brian Brickman on LinkedIn and Twitter, and then Logi Analytics. Brian, thanks for the time. I learned more about predictive analytics. It's not an area where I know a lot about. And that was great to hear. And I love the quote, too, you shared. And I appreciate you bringing the information to Everyday Innovators. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator, where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. I so much appreciate you listening and telling others about this too. Please go to iTunes and leave a review for this podcast. That helps others to be able to find it. You'll find the written notes of the discussion with Brian at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 209. Once again, keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit theeverydayinnovator.com.